Isn't her voice nice when she says that? <laughs> so, hi, I'm Hannah. Hi, I'm Chris. And we are back with Sade for the new crime. I'm sorry, Our- when Sade, you could just... Hi, I'm Sade. Oh, hi, I'm Sade. We're in it. (laughs) What's up? But we're back with part two of the 1985 move bombing. But first, Chris just had a birthday. Not just had. Especially not when this comes out. They're a Libra. But, and this is full. We're like, don't name me as a Scorpio. But they just had a birthday and I haven't really gotten to talk to them about it. So tell us about your birthday. It was really nice. Um... Usually in my Libra self, I feel like for birthdays, I'm really excited and really down. Like I make a mood board. I have a theme. Like I love my birthday. This year, I just feel a little sad, a little like overwhelmed with life, Uh, a little weird about like age, but it ended up like really, really coming through in the end. I went to like dinner. 24 was literally the best year of my life, which is a hot take because that did include the pandemic, but it was like the later end of the pandemic when like my shit was together more 24 is a great year 24 is a great year I'm hopeful it's not even like the age thing it's just kind of like I feel like I have no space in my life right now to celebrate you know like we'll celebrate you I'm celebrating that's super valid I don't know do you bank it once my parents celebrated my half birthday you can push it off and then do it in six months. You know, I like that. I mean, to be fair, I I celebrated. I okay. celebrated. I went to a and, spa. And Ooh. they got a nice birthday present. I they got, got a healthy fucking finally, fucking finally. Every day I'm on the subway and I see this white girl with her pink telfy every single day. And I'm like, I cannot believe I do not have a telfar. My time I, has come. <laughs> I don't mean to alienate our audience. But I think it's unfair that all these white women have telfars now, while so many black women do not. It's <laughs> and fucked I feel up. Like right that fucked this is the reparations like, we deserve. I'm not saying that like white women can't have telfars. Like, period, go at it. Make sure you give one to a black one first. Like, I think it should be a law yes. that if you as a non-black person want to buy a telfar, you must give one to a black person first, and then you can go and get yours. Oh, I like that. Absolutely agree. Okay, to be fair, I did celebrate because I went to the spa, I got a Telfi, and then I went out to dinner and I went dancing and I was like, okay, I want to bring the Telfar, but like, I don't want to, I want to like throw ass. I don't want to be holding the Telfar. <laughs> so then my partner carried my Telfar the whole night and I kept going to like my friends like, look, he got me a Telfar. And then he'd be like, here's the Telfar. <laughs> So I felt very celebrated. Amazing. And that, I'm just going to say it. Ladies, if you wanted to, he would. If he wanted wanted to, he would. 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 Look, I don't subscribe to dating men. I think some of y'all are a little crazy, but there's good ones out there. Are there? Chris's partner. Yeah. So we're at one. (laughs) I don't know. My dad's pretty cool sometimes. One and a half. I've never posted him on my Instagram, (laughs) but he gets a shout out. But you posted a TikTok. I did. And y'all looked very cute. A TikTok because he was taking her braids out. Yep. That's love. Which, by the way, then Chloe was like, you have to help me take my braids out because Chris's partner helped them take their braids out. Chloe commented that. And I was like, are you kidding? Hannah doesn't already help you? We got a chat. (laughs) What's going on? Anyway, we got a case to talk about. We got a case to talk about. (laughs) Okay. 
So tops in the culture this time, I feel like we had like our fun little moment, but I just found this uh, piece of writing that I wanted to share. It's by Sasha Smith. Her Instagram name is at Sasha Smith four. And I felt like a lot of the times when we talk about abolition, it's so focused on like destruction, dismantling the system. And I think this is a beautiful example of like community and what we hope to build. I want to be asked to come over and help put my friend's kids to bed as casually as they might text their spouse and ask them to pick up milk on their way home. I want to stop and pick up milk for another friend because I know their spouse hates the grocery store. I want to buy fruit that I don't like because it's on special and I know people who do. I want to pass lemons over the fence and take my neighbor's bins out when they forget. I want group chats instead of ride shares, calls in the middle of the night because someone's at the hospital lonely or hungry or both. I want to do dishes in other people's houses, extra servings wrapped in tinfoil and tea towels so it's still warm when you drop it off, a basket of other people's mending by my couch. I want to be surrounded by reminders that imposing on each other's lives is what we were born to do. And I just loved that. And it like, I saw it on Instagram, but I was like, wow, like this is what community is to me. And like, what is abolition if not like centering and being in community? I literally have chills. I reposted that. I saw you posted that on Instagram. I reposted it. And two of my friends reached out and were like, this is what I want. And I was like, (laughs) it's so annoying. Wanting the community that I want. Like we're in community now. Yay. It's so annoying because so many people are like, that's what I want. And I'm like, then how are we here? Like how is this like where we're at? And like, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but like what I've started doing with people, because I think people have a really hard time visualizing like a better world like this I hear a lot of like this is the way things are like this is just how things exist I will be asked people I'll be like what is your dream world like I don't know if you guys have read socialism seriously but there's a chapter in there where he's like this is what a day in my socialism looks like and I talk about this all the time I'm like okay in my dream world we live in small cities this is my dream guys two to ten thousand person cities surrounded by farmland so you can like farm ever free eat like e-scooters whatever the heck and then you have like inner city transport and maybe some like cars that people can borrow, right? Like I, I think that's, that's my ideal to, world too. Thank you. Something really radical to do is like, this is my dream world. And like, you agree. So let's take steps backwards. And how do we get there? Um, not, not just radical, but I think that people don't understand how many people think that way. I used to live in this apartment building and I struck up a conversation with this guy one day because he had like an Indiana t-shirt I'm from Indiana I was like okay let's chat about it he lets slip that he worked for the previous administration so immediately I was like oh god got it got it got it got it there's a thing in DC where like people say little things that let you know like what they do for work and I quickly picked up that this guy was a Republican so I'm having this conversation it went so long we actually ended up going to dinner because we were talking about the world, how we see it and what we want from it. And we wanted the same world, but we had just completely Dude, different ideas of how to get there. Me. And I was like, and there was a few times where I asked him, I was like, but how do you think that your strategy for getting there is going to work? Like, be serious. How do you think it's going to work? And you say that this is the world you want, but you are supporting a party that does not want that world. And you know that they don't want that world because you work in it. How do you rectify that? How do you justify that? And we we had a nice dinner talking about that. And then I moved on with my life and he moved on with his. But like, it was so fascinating to me that like, he was this Republican guy who's from the Midwest. And I feel like 
this feeling of like, I want community is like so big in the Midwest because the culture there is different, but like, we're so different, but we want the same things. And why can't we get there? No, it's so frustrating. And like, I talked to actually, like, I've been really surprised because in Skid Row, there's a lot of very strong Trump Republicans. And I've been, oh yeah, I register a lot of black Republicans to vote Mm. and it's very interesting. But like, even like a lot of the security guards who understand the depth of the problem, believe that we need radical change, yada, yada, come from the police or the military. And we talk about that a lot. Um, And a lot of them are kind of raised with this like American protect and serve values. Or like, here's when I talk about this guy that I know was a cop. And he's like, I believe in law and order. And I was like, let's be real. So do I, except the law and order isn't fair. And he was like, well, we agree. And I'm like, so then why aren't we working towards finding law and order where people are like equally treated? And even as a cop, he was like, I break all, I used to break all these rules or like there was a drug dealer that came to his neighborhood and he threw the drugs out and let the guy go for free. And I was like, or like, let the guy go with no repression. I'm like, so you don't actually believe in law and order. You believe in community and care and you want order to exist. And like, so do most people. Like most people want to have a sense of order in their lives. We don't disagree on these things. Your rhetoric is scary because law and order signifies something else, right? Like when you say pull yourself up by your bootstraps, I'm like, okay, that's not the right language. But like when I, like I hear what you're saying and that for you, that means like give someone a hand so that they can help themselves out of whatever situation they're in. I'm like, which I agree with. I just find that like, I meet all these people who I just never thought we would be on the same page. And I think that I end up bumping heads with a lot of leftists because I think they're leftists from like interest convergence, right? We're like, you're a leftist because you know, that's the quote unquote right thing to say. And I find these like, again, I'm talking like January 6th Republicans who are like, but I believe in community and love and all of these things. I'm like, so we're actually probably more on the same page than me and these leftists who are just here to dunk on people on the internet. Mm, I hear you I've I've said this a lot where like I feel like this like far left far right is not like so strong it's more like a circle and like there's there's like this I have a family member who has more like horseshoe theory so bad (laughs) don't get me started because I got canceled for talking about horseshoe canceled I got canceled I had Hassan Piker in my mentions talking about me because of horseshoe theory (laughs) let's talk about internet leftists (laughs) anyway chris sorry continue continue i have a family member who has you know been just like a survivor of the system in so many ways like a black man incarcerated like all the things and i love him so much he's one of i think he has like one of the most beautiful spirits super like almost alt-right at this point but it's not because he's some hateful person at it's least like in, so in my experience with this is like the a lot of times leftists get so like deep into their theory and their ideas and the way things are supposed to be where alt-right is like down to be like the government's super fucked up and things need to change and uh democrats are within the government and yeah trump is weird and says crazy stuff but he at least he's like challenging at least he's different from the government i and feel like so there's like this easy. thing where people want 
people who are willing to be like straight up full chest radical and full chest against our systems right like if you've been screwed over by the system so much and like in california like democrats have been in power for most of it right like you're disillusioned because you've seen democratic governments over and over and over fail your population Mm -hmm. and so like I mean, I think we talk about this with things like gang violence, right? Where it's like, well, what does it mean if a gang is your best jobs program? Like, what does that mean about what the state is offering you? But the same thing for like the alt-right. It's like, if the alt-right is someone's like, this is my best bet to get change, what does that mean about the left? Mm. Also, it is so easy to fall down the alt-right pipeline. Like to be a leftist, you got to read some theory, do some practice, praxis, join a mutual aid group, be on the right. To be an alt-right, person you literally have to join one single chat group chat and like maybe watch three tiktoks yeah go on and you're in you're in well and that's why i talked about it on tiktok recently like i've been really concerned that my for you page has been as conservative as it is because i know i have someone i used to really care about who fell down the all-right pipeline and like i can't converse with him anymore because it's like you view me as an enemy and i don't necessarily like view him as someone who's alt-right as an enemy I view you as like my community member that's been led astray Mm. and I think like that gets back to like what you were talking about in this poem Chris is like people crave community and whether we like it or not the alt-right creates a community for some of these people especially white men which is why like we see some of the terrible stuff we see there but like the left doesn't always create the community that they think that they do I mean, I think that even relates to like this story with Move. Like Move had this idea of they're serving the community, but like they are harassing their neighbors. Like the left doesn't always do community as well as it needs to. And like, that's sad because at the end of the day, all we crave is to be close to people and to have that love for our neighbor and everything like that. And like, it doesn't click for everyone how to get there. And I think it's what I've seen a lot in, like, various organizing spaces is we, like, police each other a lot. Like, and I I think it's super important and valid to, like, hone in on language and to address harmful language. But I rarely see it where it comes from assuming best intentions of someone and then addressing their language and using it as a moment for, like, pivoting and education, not as a moment for, like, shame. I also feel like the people that we're like showing grace to are not often the people that like deserve grace. Like Mm -hmm. I think people need to understand the state of our education system in this country, understand the state of propaganda in this country and like realize a lot of these people just really don't get it. And I can think about it with all sorts of like current events, like the Taylor Swift situation and the, the, the protests that we talked about in the last episode situation. Like it's people that are just like, aren't, understanding where other people are coming from and like not willing to like show grace and like have those conversations and there's like like a lack of understanding of harm right like taylor swift's music video is harmful in using the word fat it is not the same as her like dropping the n-word 10 times in a song it's also not the same as her hitting someone with her car right like or her private jet emissions whatever and like the internet's like these are all the same (laughs) No, no difference and it's like Okay, like even like let's talk about like the move case, right? Causing your neighbors shit is harmful. I like 100% agree. Is it as harmful as dropping a firebomb in your community? 
I'd say no. Like those aren't equal levels of harm. But like, if you put that on the internet today, I'm sure so quickly you get comments being like, well, it was justified because they were doing X, Y, and Z. And it was like, can you not compare the levels of retro, like what happened? Like being naked and annoying and loud does not then equal weaponized military grade state violence. Like those don't actually line up very well for me. And like the internet's concept of like harm, accountability, care, bringing people back into the fold is so bad. And there's also just so many bad faith actors that, I mean, we talked about this a little bit with your TikTok. You want to provide education. You want to go as far as you can, but also at some point you have to be like, this is bad faith and I can no longer engage. And it's just like so hard to know where those lines are now. Anonymity on the internet. Like there's so many elements of that that I think just make it really hard to be on the left and feel good about that also. Also, our messaging sucks. Like the right has such good messaging. They're really good at messaging. And the other thing I always say is like, when I'm getting someone into like bell hooks, like all about love, I'm like, this work is painful. It's going to suck. You're going to have to like grieve and mourn for your inner child. You're going to cry. Like you're going to feel really weighed down. It's like starting EMDR. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're doing a process and it's hard work. And that's, and you're going to confront the systemic privilege that you have which is like shitty. Like it's shitty to be like, oh damn, like I've got privilege there. Like I wonder where that's come into play, yada, yada, yada. So much harder than being like, I deserve this. I pulled myself up from nothing. I be- I'm i a self-made, you know what I mean? Like it's just so much easier. Especially when your life has been hard. It's really hard for people to recognize that privilege because they're like, no, I can't be privileged. My life was hard. And it's like, yeah, everyone's life is hard everyone's life is hard. You know whose life's not hard? Like billionaires. And even then their life is hard because they, I'm sure are depressed because I'm sorry. Like you can't be happy to like behave that way. I just like, can't. They don't have that. feelings but, like, Isn't that the no, thing? I like, know, you I lose know. your empathy as you get richer. Yeah. But like, that's my, like, my point is that it's really hard to like acknowledge the privilege you have when you like have experienced tough shit. Also to something you said earlier, this is the first case that we're doing where like there's some gray in the sense that like like we the three of us we don't think that there's gray like we fully think that there's like a bad actor here but I knew that this is this is a different case than all the other cases we've done where like there were these victims that were being preyed upon by the police and I would say that like black activists have also been preyed upon by the police but this situation is different and I know that there were people that are going to look at this case and be like this is all justified which is hard because I think some of the things we'll talk about today like there's no justifying that but that's our propaganda machine and that's just like like are you so far gone that you can pro con out like human life I don't it that's the other thing like people are nuanced and the other thing is that like people fuck up and like I think I right now have such a hard time with people being like this is a good person this is a bad person it's like people make mistakes like people do bad things and like that doesn't necessarily negate their I mean it doesn't period negate their person and like humanhood right like you don't get to just remove that because someone has done something that you don't like and I think there's obviously like a lot harder situations for me right where we're talking about like crimes with children like extreme violence right where it's like I don't know there's no justification rehabilitate someone like that yeah there's no justification I don't know how you rehabilitate that to be very honest with you and like also to be fair 
that wouldn't be my job in this system. Like if the system has all this money and time, like let's actually spend some time researching good rehabilitation if we're going to start over. But you know, these, these are still nuanced people. And like, even people who do bad things have a level of nuance. And I think we talk about it a lot with these like white serial killers where like, oh, but he was abused as a child, blah, 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 blah. Or like his mom did something bad. He wet the bed. And like, yeah, those are all elements that I think play a role. It doesn't negate the crime, but it adds a level of nuance to a person where you can start talking more deeply about interventions and, you know, rehabilitation and all of those things. I mean, we've talked about that with some of these cases, like a lot of these cops that are doing these bad things, like there were things in their life that like led them to that. It doesn't justify it, but it, it might explain it. And it might point to something that we can like address systemically. And for me, it always just brings me back to like, who gets to decide, like who gets to decide who's beyond rehabilitation and who gets to decide who can be helped. Like, I, I just don't think that that's like a human decision. Also, like, like, how do we decide what a crime is? Like, there's so many elements of nuance in any legal case that just suck. <laughs> it just sucks. Yeah. Okay. We've kind of already gotten into the case a little bit. Chris. Cops in the Culture, that poem. I'm really glad that we started with that. I did not think that that would get to, I feel like we've been talking for like so long about that, but it's, it's cause that it's like an inspirational poem. You inspired us. Shout out uh, Sarah, whoever, who wrote that. <laughs> Love it. Okay. When we left off, Move had just moved into the Osage Avenue house and were again at odds with their neighbors. Their trash was all over the place again. They had dogs running around again. And they had actually had several like verbal confrontations with their neighbors in this community um, because they were once again using their bullhorns to like yell their political messages. So like I said before, Move figured if they were as enough of a nuisance that their neighbors would go to the city and push them to concede to their demands. And while in theory that could have worked, in practice, that was never going to happen. I actually found an interview from one of their neighbors at the time, Gerald Renfro. And I want to preface this with, this man is a cop who lived in the neighborhood. So there is definitely bias. Um, and I'd love to hear from residents that like weren't in law enforcement. There was just, this was the best interview I could find, but quoting from NPR, they started to board up their windows and doors, Renfro said. They started to espouse their philosophy. We thought it was inappropriate to come onto a residential block with loudspeakers blaring all hours of the day and night. Renfro had a tricky relationship with Move. He is a former cop. He spoke warmly about this time, his time on the Philadelphia force. He smiled as he remembered not being able to fit, into, fit his uniform cap over his afro. Still, he was not anti-move in the abstract, even though part of the reason the organization had come to Osage Avenue was to reestablish itself after a deadly shootout with police. We sympathized with move, but we didn't want them to have their stage on Osage Avenue because it infringed on us who had been living there, Renfro said. No, I did not want them to be here, but I did not want them to be murdered. I did not want them to be attacked. I'm disappointed by the police force and I'm disappointed by the mayor. So like we said, there's obvious bias there, but that sentiment of like, I support their thoughts, not their actions is like not uncommon. I had a long conversation with my own grandparents about this because like they were 
pretty involved in the civil rights movement in the 60s, but they felt similarly about Black liberationists who they viewed as more extreme because they were both nonviolent protesters in the vein of like Dr. King. And so the radical methods that like MOVE and the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army made, like that didn't align with their mission. And they respected the civil rights gains that they made because of those groups. It kind of gave the broader like society, like you can go with these you can deal with these extremists or you can like negotiate with these nonviolent folks. And that's like what led to a lot of the gains that they had. But like my grandparents, they would never have aligned themselves with like these radicals. And they were like black activists who still didn't necessarily agree with like what move was doing. So of course, like middle-class residents, black cops, stuff like that, like they're not going to be down with this in their community. I guess my first thought there is like kind of the conversation we have today about protesting of like, is that not a protest? Is that not what protesting is? Like protesting is you're being a public nuisance until people listen to you. And ideally it's nonviolent. Sometimes violence has like plays a role. And like, again, what is violence? What is state sanctioned violence? Like, what does it mean to be enacted on by a violence? There's like so many things you can like start like really digging into, but like I guess like what's frustrating is I hear that sentiment and I think it's really valid, right? Like, again, we talked a bit before about like, you want your kids to be safe. You want to be able to come home and feel comfortable. Like I understand all of those things, but like inherently, this is a very peaceful, I mean, not inherently, theoretically, this is a very peaceful protest doing what a protest is meant to do. And like, I think we see this a lot where people are like, how dare the BLM people get on the highway? Or like, how dare they block the train? And it's like, that's actually what a, protest is that is the protest like that's, that's the important. whole point that's the whole point I remember in 2020 I had some guy I had like worked with when I was 18 dm me and be like but why do they have to be in the street and it's like because you would ignore them otherwise <laughs> like that's why that's why because this has been going on forever Sam it has and you didn't notice until people were in your face making you notice i mean in 2020 people literally were like i didn't know racism still existed to me and i was like (laughs) mind-boggling like like i get pulled over and they know like they know i'm one like one of us like went to a pwi i have the language i will you know what i mean and it's like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to them and i think people are continually surprised by that and like these protests do bring awareness and 2020 i mean i was just random on tiktok has seemingly like kind of fizzled out, but there was an education campaign that occurred just based on the fact that people were protesting and their voices were being amplified. And also like, oh my God, I see it with my kids. Like teaching middle school, the kids growing up in like 2020, the awareness is crazy. And like the expectation of like immediacy and change, it's significant for sure. I think- it's been disappointing to see like the movement and the like fire we saw in 2020 kind of fizzle but I think we picked up allies along the way I really do because people white people in my own personal life like really they did the work like they took the steps they they tried and I think (laughs) to a certain extent that's all a lot of us are asking like we're not asking white folks to be perfect. We're not asking anyone to be perfect. We're asking you to try to continue to learn. And being open to the fact that there's, there's not really an end for that, right? Like abolition doesn't have an end. 
abolition is like an ongoing process. It's you can equality is an ongoing process. Like we don't have a good definition, working definition of what equality is, right? Like all of these things are processes. And ideally you look back at yourself and you're like, I'm glad I've grown from that person who used to exist. Yeah. Anyway, after a series of reports from the neighbors, police obtained an arrest warrant for four move occupants for parole violations, contempt of court, illegal possession of firearms, and making terrorist threats. The mayor, Wilson Good, by this point, and police commissioner Gregory Sambor had classified MOVE as a terrorist organization. Now, Let's take a moment to kind of set the scene and talk about Gregory Sambor, Wilson Good, and Leo Books, the city manager, because in theory, like, they're the villains here. And like, spoiler alert, they weren't held accountable. <laughs> um, but they did, you know, they greenlit dropping a bomb in a residential neighborhood, which, you know, according to the city of Philly is fine. Anyway, Gregory Sambor was a 35-year military veteran in both Vietnam and Korea. He went on to become a police officer and eventually police chief after police commissioner after his time in the army. And he argued that MOVE was a terrorist organization and was the one to tell firefighters to stand down and let the fire burn. Woodrow Wilson Good Sr. was the first African-American mayor of Philly. He was born into a family of tenant farmers in North Carolina. He moved to Philly with his family in his teens and was an honors student at John Bertram High School before going to Morgan State University and HBCU in Baltimore. He was also in the army in the 60s where he served as a military police officer. He got a graduate degree from UPenn and went on to work for the Public Utility Commission and in Mayor Bill Green's office. He was the first black man working at the Public Utility Commission, as well as, like I said, the first black mayor. He was almost always one of the only black people in the rooms that he was in because like, this is the seventies and eighties. Like there had been such a concerted effort to like squash down black political leaders. So they had people like Woodrow Wilson Good who like were palatable. Um, he was running against Frank Rizzo, who would have been the exact same thing, you know, like he was the guy in the last episode. Leo Brooks was the city manager. He was born in Alexandria, Virginia, and after going to Virginia State, entered the army, where he served for 30 years, eventually earning the rank of general before moving to Philly and beginning to work there. Now, there's a few things I want to talk about with these three guys. First of all, they all have military experience. So many of the cops we talk about have military experience. And like, they bring that war mentality home, but they're also like violent and terrible in these other countries. And like, <laughs> we have so much crime in the military. It's interesting that like, it's not interesting at all, but like, we so easily let these like military guys just move from there to like policing because basically the military is like the international police, but like that, military mindset like that shouldn't be on any streets you know but like definitely not in our own like you know what I mean yes and you guys said this last week see avid listener you guys said this sorry two weeks ago which was that like if you're a reformer let's start by putting some limits on who can be a cop maybe if you have a dv charge you shouldn't be a cop maybe if you've done war crimes abroad you shouldn't be a cop 
right? Like there's so many like little steps that I think we could start taking that just aren't happening. And it's like, I would, I want to see a new system. I want a new system, but I'll concede on little things now. Like, sure. Let's start reforming while we're here. And there's such small steps. Yeah. I mean, let's think about like with the military, first of all, these, these men were in Korea and Vietnam. Look, they didn't teach those things too well in my Indiana public school, but I hear Vietnam was pretty fucking bad and traumatic for everyone involved, including the U.S. soldiers. So now you have these soldiers who have PTSD and you're sending them out into the streets to help people. Like, that just sounds like a recipe for disaster, especially because we know that, like, our current systems don't support veterans retransitioning into, like, our, our like, American also, society. who are you killing abroad? It's not usually white people right? Like you're already primed to see people who are not white and like, understandably Vietnam is not the same as black Americans visually hundred percent, but you're already primed for an us versus them mentality where us is largely white men, right? You're primed to see people of color, usually specific groups of people of color, but people of color as enemies. What does that mean to bring that attitude back to your hometown? And I think that's super relevant because you talk about PTSD, Hannah, like fireworks aren't gunshots, right? But these reactions are still happening the same way. And yeah, sure, Vietnamese people aren't going to look the same as black people in Philly, but it still is that same, that, that same trigger of like, yeah, us versus them. The other thing that this mainly makes me want to talk about, especially this should be coming out the night before the election, but like, this is why local elections matter. Like, I'm not one to be like, we can just like vote away all of our problems, but like, there are certain things that you can do by participating in this like, kind of fucked version of democracy that we have here. And like, look, look at the mayor's race in this situation. Like, Wilson Good and Frank Rizzo were both like not great options, but like, there was a primary, I'm sure, where someone better could have been on the ballot. Like. All of these three, I don't know if police commissioner in this situation is an elected job, but like city manager and mayor are elected positions. Like had there been different elected officials in office, like maybe the situation would have resulted differently. And like on the local level, especially, I get people don't like voting in presidential elections because it seems like their vote doesn't matter. And these local elections are sometimes determined by like a handful of votes. Like it actually super matters and you can materially change the environment of your community by like being engaged in that. I, I totally agree. And I also think going back to what we were saying about like where leftists can be problematic is like, I was talking to one of my students And I was saying something about like, okay, yeah, but what have they actually done for you about like this politician? And he was like, I mean, my EBT got increased $100 a month for my family. Like that's changed our lives. And I think I used to come from the perspective of abolition where I was like, any reform is a step against abolition. But now I'm like, damn, how do I look my student in the face whose life has been materially bettered by something that I view as small and not nearly enough? But you can't, you can't discount that either. There's still people that have to live right now. The other thing I'll say is I think this like kind of goes against white liberal vibes of like, okay, there was a black person in the room, right? Like, let's talk about your diversity quota real quick because we hit it. We had a black mayor in this situation, right? Like all skin folk ain't kin folk, which is like, a, like, I don't know, non-black people know that saying, <laughs> but like, 
just because someone is a person of color does not mean that they are on your side. And I think that like this has been like a, a sad example of that. Like it's shitty to know that there was a black mayor in office while this stuff went down. And, you know, I, I don't think you can fully put the blame on one person for these type of things, but like your diversity quota for a lot of people was met, right? Like the Barack Obama racism solved vibe applied here. So it's in 1984, you had a black mayor and this stuff still went down. So it's more than just the representation in the room. And I think that's always really important to point out. Yeah, it's the right representation. Like you have to put the right people into power. And as a reminder, y'all go vote tomorrow. Like I really know, I know that you probably don't fully vibe with the person on the ballot, but like the alternative is fascism. Like some of these people who are running on the ballot, like some of these ballots are scary. I don't know where y'all are. I'm in DC, so my vote truly doesn't matter. But like, you know, I just came, I just moved from Florida. Like, God, get those people out of there. Like, yeah, it, your it vote really matters. Also, you get a free sticker, guys. And a donut. I love a Krispy Kreme. We don't get donuts. Krispy Kreme. They give you free donuts if you vote. We. For real? That's just like changed the political yeah. game for me. At least they did in 2016 and 2018. And I have to think in 2020 as well. Also, guys, your voting record is public. I'll when I when I see meet people, I'll look up how often you vote. <laughs> and I and it 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 changes how I think about people. That's my first question. Oh, my first question on dating apps is who did you vote for in the 2020 primary? That's my big suss out question. And it says so much. And honestly, it doesn't really matter who you voted for. It matters how you talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't vote in the 2020 primary. Neither did I. To be fair, I, I like there was two options by the time there was two options by the time I was voting. And like it was pretty clear what that Biden was going to be the nominee. But um yeah, personally, there I had two options. I wasn't incredibly satisfied with either. So I was yeah. like, you know, I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna support, I'm gonna literally work for whoever yeah, wins. So. You didn't lie about it. The issue that I find with men is they lie about it mm-hmm. in particular. Oh, you like they'll talk once about yeah. catching somebody. I catch people, this is the biggest lie I catch people in. And men are like, also, it's funny because whenever I talk about it on the internet, men are like, I would never answer that. And I'm like, I've never asked a man and not had him like, be like shitting himself to prove that he's a good person um but like they always lie I that's like my biggest thing and I'll be like I didn't vote I was between states I financially supported Bernie Sanders it didn't work out and then these guys will be like I love Elizabeth Warren and I'm like did you vote for her and they'll be like yeah and it's like months later like actually I voted for Biden and I'm like it's breaking news men lie yeah, but it's like, you could have told me you voted for Biden. Like, I would rather you be like, I voted for Biden. It wasn't my top choice. The issue for me is the way people talk about voting so fast is exposed when you ask them about their primary vote. Also, like, first of all, like, you can have a discussion about it. But also, I don't know, 2020, it was a long time ago. I mean, it wasn't. Like, it was so recently. But I know, like, me, my ideology has shifted a lot since 2020 in large part because like the pandemic the the George Floyd protest like all of that like shaped my worldview and definitely pushed me a lot farther left than I was in 2020 I mean I don't this isn't a secret I worked for Pete Buttigieg like that was the candidate that I like literally went to work for um 
and I like, there's a lot of reasons and I stand behind that decision, but like, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily do that again. Like I pushed farther left in the two years. Like it's okay to say, yeah, I, this is who I supported. I don't necessarily agree with them now. Or even if you do, like, that's also okay. Why don't we have, a, why don't we have a chat about it? It's like such an interesting question. I think it's like such an interesting kind of political leaning politics. I get a lot of, I don't vote. I met a guy who votes for his brother in every election. He writes him in. And I was like, great, unmatched. <laughs> I know a guy who writes in a person every time. And I'm kind of like. I ugh, get it. I, but see, I, I like get it. But I'm it on a local like, level. Like, no, I was that's like, crazy. I, I was like, who are you voting for mayor? He's like, I'm going to write in my brother. And I was Literally, like, no, fuck mind. you. Literally, fuck you. That's like not. That strange. actually matters. Like, it's a not lot. funny. Like, it's not like. It's a joke between you and yourself, and it's not funny. The thing really? I always say is like it's it's such a good example of how you view people who are more oppressed than you are. Like your your perspective on voting says a lot to me actually about you doing something very small that has material impacts for people who are probably less privileged than you. Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. That's a great way to frame it. Anyway, the mayor's office, Mayor Good didn't want to address the problems with MOVE for a really long time because they were really afraid of another violent confrontation like the shootout in the 70s. So this is what I was getting to in the previous episode. Like there was a weird dynamic between the community at this point because like nobody was happy with the MOVE situation, but everyone was too afraid to act in case the violence would erupt anymore. The police, however, seemed to think that the only solution to this situation was to evict MOVE, no matter how violently. And that's what they did. And I will say at this point, I wonder what else could have been done to alleviate the situation. Like, I wonder if there could have been an intervention here or not. And I, I, as someone who believes there can always be an intervention, like, Tensions had just escalated so much at this point that like move was not going to negotiate with these people. They weren't. And I, I know they maybe it. release their 11 family members who are incarcerated for the murder. Like true, but like that was also never going to happen. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Like, like we never see good faith gestures world. for negotiation. Like that's the thing that I think always like pisses me off when I see these cases too. It's like people are making, I would argue, relatively reasonable demands and like the I would say like administrative governmental side never seems to make steps towards meeting those and I mean even steps like let's look at the least the least charges person and see if we can get them released right like an act of good faith I think would always go so far in these situations the problem is that the government comes in or the police come in and they're always just antagonistic and like we see this at protests right like there's a lot of protests where I'm at where like cop cars get destroyed we're like maybe we wouldn't have gotten there if the cops hadn't come in starting out in riot gear and shoving people to the ground like maybe you wouldn't have to like carry a baton if you didn't start out by using it yeah and I will say like I'm not saying this to in any way defend like our government but like as someone who's worked in politics derogatory like it's all politics like that's what it is the reason Mayor Good is like no I'm not going to cage to their demands is because he knows that he'll lose the moderate voters he'll lose the white suburban voters like he'll lose voters if he does that and like that's what's frustrating like 
my work in politics has like totally rotted my brain because I can't talk to people about how our political system works anymore because they're like, well, I don't understand. This is what people want. Why aren't they doing it? And it's like, yeah, because there's people who also don't want it. And like the politics of it all is messy. And that's all people care about. The top on crime stands. Like I, if I could like get rid of any political phrase, it would be like our children and like tough on crime. Those two, I think under like, just absolutely have ravaged black communities. Well, especially because like the way tough on crime has been weaponized against like people on the left, especially when like, it's kind of people on the right that aren't so tough on crime. Like why aren't they addressing our like rogue police situation? Why aren't, why are they just letting anyone have a gun? Why are they doing these things? Like if you're so tough on crime, why can a toddler walk into a gun show and pick up an AR-15? Like, you know what I mean? No, you they're never I mean? actually tough on crime. And like, okay, so this guy I mentioned, the one who talked about, I think I tend to talk about in the last episode, breaking the drug vials and letting the guy go and being like, don't come back as opposed to arresting him, which is the tough on crime law and order actual approach. He was telling me, he got a call once and it was his daughter driving with four people in her car getting a DUI. Like, and they called him and they were like, officer, blah, 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 blah. Like, we looked you up. Your daughter mentioned that you're a cop. Your dad was a cop. We're going to let her go. And he was like, thank you so much. I'm like, so you're not actually tough on crime when the crime is like internal to your family or like internal to your situation. Like you're not tough on crime. You're tough on crime for people you don't like. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I was going to, I mean, and that's the whole thing with crime. Like literally what is crime? Like it, it's, we're not just like criminalizing the poor. We're, we're creating the construct of crime around the way people are forced to live. Also, this just like came to me, police unions vote, police vote, but police unions vote, like not, not to like circle back to the whole voting thing, but we're kind of still on it. We're on this politic conversation. Like these people are able to have so much power because they are active in these systems. They understand how the systems work and they use them to their advantage, whether it's right or wrong. Like, I think we all know the Republican party does some pretty unethical shit, but they are effective because they understand how dirty this game is and they, and they, and they win. I also want to say, I said earlier, it's easy to vote. It's not easy to vote for everybody. And I understand if you can't vote, I want to clear that up. But the thing with that, yeah, like I no, completely is that they, they do vote, they vote in a block and there's this concept of like fallen soldier or like killed in line of duty that I think makes it really hard for police ever to start working with people when a cop has been killed. Like you're going to get immediate pushback once the police have been injured, even if the other people are being like, (laughs) again, just like destroyed by the police or destroyed by the system, that doesn't really matter once there's a fallen officer. And I think that's a really hard thing to come back from because we think about it again, like military line of duty, you died serving your country. We're going to uphold that as opposed to the people who did it. Yeah. I mean, how was the mayor supposed to publicly negotiate with move after they killed an officer, even though we know like that on its own is kind of bullshit but like you know you know what I mean like how would that look imagine the news headlines I mean the NYPD and like in the back of every single car has a bumper sticker that says like ten thousand dollar reward for anyone who like reports someone for shooting at a cop car like the way they take a cop's life over everything else is crazy 
So the last straw in this neighborhood for move was they erected a fortified bunker on the roof of their building with holes that could serve as gun, po gun ports. Move believed themselves to be a self-defense organization that didn't necessarily mean nonviolent. Like they were fully prepared to defend themselves, which is why they built this bunker. But um, like they had no intention of like, going on the attack like it was all a self-defense thing in their mind and they were never like openly aggressive and violent towards other people like yeah they would shout their messages at them but they wouldn't like assault or accost people but regardless their neighbors were fed up justifiably so their neighbors were fed up and they actually went to the governor of pennsylvania and were like we need to get move out of here. They are a clear and present danger to the health and safety of the block. And people who work in like any sort of law enforcement realm, like they know that when you use those terms like clear and present danger, like that's it. They're, they're calling the police, they're, they're bringing the police in. Feeling pressure from the governor, Mayor Good requested a tactical plan for removing move from the house. He had the district attorney activate the outstanding a warrant, the outstanding arrest warrants for the four adults in the house, and got a court order for police to remove the children aged seven to thirteen who were deemed at risk because they were being kept from school. Just a small aside, I hate that that is something that's consistently weaponized against Black people not having their kids in school, but not weaponized against white people who homeschool their kids for whatever reason like the QAnon people or the Christian fundamentalists who like don't even teach their daughters to read because they're like raising them to be wide oh I'm deep I'm deep yeah no I I studied abroad with a girl who grew up in the same community as um the 19 kids and counting Duggar, the Duggar family and she I'm was saying in the Duggar when family. she ended up going to college and she went to a Christian college I'm pretty sure but when she ended up going to college people in her community were like, why are you doing that? She'd been homeschooled her whole life. And they were like, why are you doing that? You just, you can find a husband here. And she's like, I'm not going to find a husband. Like, th like this idea of like, the kids need to be in school. That's never weaponized against those types of people. I'm sorry, mostly white people. It's always weaponized against black people. Sorry, but I also had like a classmate in high school whose family was avid travelers and he missed a month and a half of school because they wanted to visit every continent like i had a friend who was as an educator on a boat. i know the truancy laws like that's not that's not an actual reason to like it's crazy the i have friends yeah, who were raised on a boat homeschooled on a boat and that's what they did they would sail from place to place and homeschool they had no wi-fi so they weren't actually doing school like absurd the other thing is that like i always say like when people aren't doing x what is the better option like okay if you want kids to come to school, let's get good free lunch programs. You want to give, I studied this in Kenya. Young girls come to school more when they provide water at school because when they get their periods, they can come to school and clean up and you're not forced to kind of stay home with like the period shame that a lot of um, like African tribes sometimes or like shame or, you know, glory, whatever you want to consider it, whatever per period perception there is. Oftentimes you have to stay home. If you provide water to middle school girls, they will have better test scores. 
because they come to school, right? So like, if your kid isn't coming to school, what's the option? And like, I'm sure there are a million black kids in Philly who are not going to school, who should be, theoretically, if the schools are good. And it's like, what about them? Like, they should be in school too. Like, let's talk about how bad the schools are that people aren't sending their kids or their kids are being kicked out or the school to prison pipeline. Like, I'm scared to send black kids to school sometimes, right? Like, all of these things impact everything. Like, I don't know, everything's systemic and the world is hard. That's well, my conclusion. And my thing too is like, the reason that MOVE didn't send their kids to school is because they wanted to keep their kids away from the establishment. And like, I think there's something to be said for that. Like, we should talk about the fact that schools teach you to be a good worker under capitalism. They don't teach you to think. They don't teach you to be creative. Like they don't do that. Schools don't serve us the way that they should. Like we can and should have that conversation. I'm not saying that like people have to be in our school systems, but I'm also not saying that like we should just let any old person homeschool. And we should at least enforce it like fairly. Like we shouldn't just penalize people of color for but choosing. Primarily that primarily every single resource that comes from the system, at least in schools, is to hurt people. Like it is it is not meant to help the kids whatsoever. I've worked in a school Chris, that tried to teacher, get <laughs> I've worked in a school that tried to get a washing machine because we were trying to go around mandated reporter stuff with kids coming to school with dirty laundry every day and the department of education would not approve it because despite us having grant funding for unhoused children right so like there's it's every single like law that we have about keeping kids in school and keeping kids orderly and whatever it it serves in a way to to hurt specific groups of people and it serves in a way to get more data on people in order to force them out and that also gets to like a broader conversation that we can't have right now, but yeah. like about our foster care system and our adoption systems in the United States that like take away children of color from their families, poor, poor kids from their families, because like some other person will pay money to have the kid, except in the foster care system where they're like paying other people to take care of these kids. Like, why not just pay the family so that they can afford to take care of their own kids? And like, like I said, we cannot fully get into that, but like, it's so frustrating the way that these systems are weaponized against black people. We simply need so an episode on this. Like simply. Ugh, a Georgia tan episode, I could go on and on. Google Georgia tan people, that, that story's crazy. Anyway, the police never called for a local mediator. Who knew move? the neighborhood, or anyone in the community. They didn't call for a mediator at all. This would have potentially avoided the whole situation. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have. Like, we were just saying, like, I don't know if any of these people were ready to negotiate in good faith in a way that was going to get anywhere. But, like, they didn't even try. They didn't even try. Also, like, Waco got months. Like, Waco is like the one I think about a lot, which I think everyone talks about of like a compound suffering a police siege. And I think Waco had a lot of more bad stuff going on that kind of needed immediate interge- intervention. They were out there for months negotiating with white people, letting, you know, the leader of the Branch Davidians write a manifesto. Like they gave them time and ended horribly Again, saying, even still, the police went in and killed those people. Right. Like, because our because this because 
their goal isn't really to help those people. Their goal is to stop those people. And those two things are not necessarily aligned. Anyway, on the night of May 12th, Mother's Day, police evacuated the block surrounding the move house. Residents were told they would be able to return to their homes after a 24 hour period. 500 police officers were involved in this operation and it was treated like an operation of war. They knew they would face resistance after what happened in 1978 and were willing to do anything necessary to get rid of these people. At 6 a.m. the following morning, police commissioner Gregory Samber yelled through a bullhorn, attention move, this is America, you have to abide by the laws of the United States. After reading the arrest warrants, he announced, we do not wish to harm anyone. All occupants have 15 minutes to peacefully evacuate the premises and surrender. This is your only notice. The 15 minutes starts now. Shockingly, they did not surrender. And eventually a gun battle broke out with police using M16 semi-automatic rifles, Uzis, shotguns, sharpshooter rifles, a Browning automatic rifle, and a Thompson submachine gun. The police end up firing over 10,000 rounds of ammunition in under 90 minutes at the row house and deploying high pressure hoses and tear gas canisters. Quoting from Angie Lofton, a resident of the neighborhood. I had never seen anything like it. I had seen the Vietnam War coverage on TV, but never my neighborhood in flames. When I started watering the plants the next day after the bombing, they had burn holes. Moves resistance lasted into the late afternoon. As nothing else was working, Mayor Good, who was not present at the scene at any time throughout the day or night, authorized the release of a two pound satchel bomb composed of Tovex and C4 explosives from a state police helicopter onto the fortified bunker on top of the house. You can actually find footage of this online. Like this is out there and it's horrifying. And like, I don't recommend going and watching it if you can't like handle the fact that like, this is something our police did to people in a residential neighborhood. But like, I do think it's important people know that the police are capable of this. Like they will go to war in your community and will not care about who's harmed in the crossfires. I'm gonna share a quote from Michael Africa Jr., a MOVE member and son of Debbie and Michael Africa Sr. who were in prison as part of the MOVE 9 when this happened. I was living with my grandmother at the time. We were four miles away, but I could see the black smoke in the sky as if it was down the street. I went in and saw my grandmother and aunts watching the news. They were all huddled up together and they were all crying. I looked at the TV and said, that looks like our house. My aunt looked at me and said, it is. Now, maybe at this point you're tempted to say to yourself, but Hannah, the police had to do this. They were in a shootout with the MOVE members. They were at risk. This was a battle. Well, do you remember all of the guns that I said that the police had? How armed do we think MOVE was when this happened? I'm gonna answer you because after this incident was all said and done and the house was gutted, the police only found two pistols. I was gonna say two. Two shotguns and one 22 caliber rifle some of which were not even operable and none of which was a match for the military assault mounted by police. 
this is the thing. Like, how do you not look at that and be like, this is excessive force? Like the one I talk about a lot is the guy, I don't remember what his name was. I'll think about it. There was a man in Florida and they wanted to get him on a weed charge. He lived in a trailer and it went to the Supreme Court. Um, and they flew a military grade helicopter over his greenhouse at 400 feet and then took a photo through a broken window pane in his greenhouse. And we're like, we're gonna, we're, that was it. That was like a valid, you know, like eyes only search. Like you got a military grade helicopter to fly over a trailer. Are you I, out of your mind? What did the police need a helicopter for? Like I'm being well, so they, serious. They borrow them from the military. How else do you repurpose all of the military? Like I mean, that's part of why the U.S. military budget is so big, right? Like, it's it's going into our personal internal military also. We're going to get to that in a second because, wait, the stats on that are crazy. Also, like, maybe you don't think MOVE is innocent. And I'll admit that they had their flaws. In 2021, several MOVE members actually came forward and described, like, their experience with homophobia and colorism within MOVE and described the physical and mental trauma that they experienced as part of MOVE. Um, They said that John Africa was controlling and corrupt. And maybe all of that is true, but does that justify the police dropping a bomb on a Philly neighborhood? Like, okay, say MOVE's the bad guy. Does that justify the police allowing the fire to burn so fiercely that it destroyed 61 homes and killed five children who were completely innocent and were like the people that you said that you were going in to protect? Like if Move is really the bad guys, like if they are really this evil, corrupt cult, because I know like I learned back in the day that like the Black Panthers and Move and they all of them were bad, even if that's true. Does that justify the violence against those children? Does that justify the destruction of all of those other people's homes who called you, who called you to come help the problem and you made it worse? My first thought is like, there's no perfect victim either, right? Like at the end of the day, it like the police shouldn't get to and don't get to be judge, jury, and executioner. Like that's not how the system is meant to work. And Again, we talk about giving the police all of these jobs and all this power. That's not their job. Like their job there, I think would arguably like to be removal. And if that doesn't work, then, I mean, I disagree with firing this much like ammo into anyone's home and dropping bombs, but like the police's job is not to like kill people like this. That's like a military, again, shouldn't happen there either, intervention. Right. And like, I just like keep coming back to that. Like, that's not their job. And it shouldn't have ever been. And I'm also like, people who are saying, oh, well, he was corrupt. It was homophobic. He was controlling. He was even like abusive. I'm sorry, but this sounds like a lot of like relatives that I know or like parents that I know. Like, are we saying that that's what should happen? Like, controlling homophobic manipulative? Like, is that what we were saying? Yeah, just happen to bomb people? your relative's house. That's what the police are saying. Exactly. I'm on my way, mom. <laughs> no, right. But, but and again, like, I think we also, like, to me, it does matter that bad things were happening. Like, I don't want to say that that's not important because it is. But again, there's never going to be a perfect victim. And there's always going to be bad things you can find about people, right? Like, if I was killed by the police today, I'm sure there's stuff that they could dig up on me that could make me look really bad. Um. Or, I mean, I don't know how much stuff there is actually to dig up on me, to be fair. But you know what I mean? Like, no one's, there's no perfect victim, like, ever. And I think sometimes movements get really, have a hard time with conceptualizing the fact that, like, 
bad people don't deserve the police to bomb your home um but like if these people get bombed who does that mean also can get bombed like what you're saying and like we have to be able to say there are shades of gray to people people do bad things and still don't deserve police violence also i'm sorry but did the police get involved because they actually cared about the well-being of move members their families and the community that they were harassing or did they get involved because they wanted these unruly black folk out of their city? Like, let's be serious. Let's let's ask these questions. Also, I think we've also just proven that the city officials were racist. I would argue, I would assume homophobic, right? Like I'm assuming that these people, In I'm the assuming Leo 80s, Brooks was controlling, yeah. right? Like, let's be let's be upfront. It's not like we're talking about a good guy and a bad guy in those like relative terms. I think- people can get really distracted from the actual thing that happened, which was the Philadelphia Police Department launched a violent attack against a residential home. No matter how bad the residential home was, like, yeah. let's be upfront. You, you can pull out all of these bad things. That does not necessarily mean that, that doesn't actually, sorry, not necessarily. That does it not mean that it. what happened was justified. Yeah. So as I just said, the police commissioner, the fire commissioner, and the mayor decided to let the fire burn in hopes it would force the occupants from the home. Now, this doesn't really make sense because reports say that they were also still shooting at folks as they were trying to flee. So how were the children supposed to evacuate the home? How was anyone supposed to evacuate the home? And in interviews, survivors say the kids especially wanted to come out, but they were afraid of being shot. So they stayed in the burning house. Quoting from Ramona Africa, one of the only survivors of this incident. We immediately tried to get our children, our animals, ourselves out of the burning building. We were hollering, we're coming out. The cops immediately started shooting, trying to prevent anybody from coming out of that house. We were forced back in at least twice. Ultimately, the fire begins to burn out of control and it gets to a point where even when they're like, oh, maybe we should address the fire, the firefighters can't get it under control. And by the end of it, like I said, the entire block was burned down, 61 houses destroyed and 11 move members, six adults and five children are dead, John Africa among them. Now, do you remember Janine Africa from part one? So she was one of the move nine. She was in prison when this happened. Well, one of her children was actually killed in the bombing. Her other child, as remember, they killed her baby in the 70s, leading up to the 1978 incident. One of her children was staying with the Africa community and was killed in this bombing. Quoting from Debbie Africa, another one of the move nine. A prison guard came to our cells and told Janine, Janet, and Sue, they just had a fire bombing at your house and your children are dead. I don't blame her because it was her job to tell us, but we couldn't believe it. It was just horrible and unbelievable. Janine says that the murder of her two children, it actually pushed her further into her beliefs. And she, I believe, is still a member of MOVE today. I sorry that's just like when I read that I just like was sick to my stomach how this woman was terrorized by the city of Philadelphia after this incident there was an investigation a report was released on March 7th 1986 that laid the blame for the incident on both move 
and city officials. To the report's credit, they do directly blame Mayor Good, Leo Brooks, and Police Commissioner Gregory Samber, and the Fire Commissioner William Richmond by name. Like they say that, hey, you all did this and this is bad. But they also said that the problem with these officials is that they had appeased move members for too long and that the mayor's policy of non-confrontation and avoidance was gross was grossly negligent. They do say that once he knew children were in the house that he should have called off the clearly failed operation as it would pose too great a risk to the life and property of those involved. Notice, caring about the property equally to the life. But ultimately, none of these folks were ever held accountable. City Manager Leo Brooks resigned from his position 10 days after the bombing, and three years later, a Philadelphia grand jury cleared him of all criminal liability. Gregory Samber also resigned, but never faced criminal charges. Um, Ed Rendell, who was the district attorney who, like, authorized the raid, um, he actually eventually became mayor and then later governor of Pennsylvania. Here's why this report is so frustrating. In the report, they talked about holding city, official, city officials accountable, but then they have a grand jury to determine if charges should be filed and they don't file any charges. They released a 300 page report about accountability, but like, where is the accountability? And in that same report, they're like, oh, but it's also Move's fault. And they were terrorists. So it's, it's they, we should blame them too. I'm sorry, why are we allowed to have nuance when it comes to the state? Like. That's that's the time when they're like, mm, well, it's complicated. Always. And it's always there's always the question of intent in these things. Right. Like we're not supposed to assume police officers intent. They're like the kind of only class of people that we don't assume that for, which is mind boggling because it's pretty important. And like the way we do qualified immunity and all of these things, like the way that we just allow people to go free. And, and I'm going to put this blame on the Supreme Court. Like all of these cases that have been litigated just allow the police continued like immunity and like pushes of bounds of the law that like there's no way to really get justice or accountability in a lot of these cases because we've allowed the right to push things so far. So, you know how I said nobody was ever held accountable for this? Um, I lied. There was one person who faced any sort of consequences for this incident, and it was Ramona Johnson Africa. During her senior year at Temple, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, Ramona had attended the trial of the Move 9. She had actually wanted to go to law school, but she was so moved by the trial that she ended up joining Move and became their Minister of Communication in 1981. And in 1986, as the sole adult survivor of the bombing, she stood trial for aggravated assault, riot, and conspiracy, and was convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison. She actually could have been released early had she done what the parole board asked her to do and disassociated herself with MOVE, but she refused. And when she was finally released in 1992, on the seven-year anniversary of the bombing, she told the press, all I want to say is release all move political prisoners. Bad bitch. Let me just say that. Um, Ramona did end up suing and was ultimately awarded $1.5 million, including $400,000 for her pain and suffering and $100,000 for her disfigurement in the fire. The city of Pennsylvania, uh, the city of Philadelphia fitted the bill for this. So that's your tax dollars at work. 
people of Philly. Also, with rebuilding the neighborhood, right? I think that there were like millions of dollars. I didn't research this episode, but like millions of dollars going into rebuilding the neighborhood as well. Well, and that's a controversy that I like, I, I read about, but I didn't want to get into because they, they rebuilt it, but like it was shoddy how they had done the rebuilds. And like a lot of people didn't want to move back into the community because like, hello, you just dropped a bomb there. And so like to this day, most of that block is empty because like the scars are there. Alberta Wicker Africa, John's former wife and the new leader of MOVE also received a settlement from the city of $2.5 million, which she used to buy another house for MOVE to settle. They kept a pretty low profile, but they did continue to refuse to let their kids enroll in school and city appointed mediators eventually arranged for the city to pay 30 to $40,000 a year for home tutoring for all of the MOVE children to be supervised by the school district. Hmm, it's almost like they could have gotten that mediator earlier and avoided all of this. Would have probably saved them some money. They probably didn't do it because they were like, no, that's expensive. Well, now you're paying what a, com a combined $4 million to these people because you killed them and burned their house down. And then if we appease people because they don't like our schools, we're going to have to send private tutors to all these kids who are getting subpar education in our horrible school system. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's almost like we have systemic problems that we need to be resolved. Now, part of why I want to talk about this case is like right now, obviously this is a case we were gonna to have to talk about, but right now is because it's back in the news recently. Last year, the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton University were reported to have withheld and studied the remains of child victims without the family's knowledge. The city's medical examiner had also mishandled remains. A top Philadelphia health official actually had to resign after it came out that he had ordered the remains cremated without talking to the family and a massive independent investigation into the situation happened. The final report didn't explain why the medical examiner didn't release the family member remains, but it did show that the office performed a grossly inadequate and biased investigation. The report did recommend a city did recommend the city change the manner of death to homicide as well, because up until that point, they had been categorized as accidental death. Bakari Sellers is representing the family of one of the victims, um, the Dotson family. They're exploring who might be liable for this incident and trying to give the family some justice. Um, because like, not only was the bombing atrocious, but like they didn't release the remains of these families for 37 years, 37 years, these people could not lay their loved ones to rest. Like they, they stole these people's bodies. That, sorry, that's just like. No, the, it's like, mind boggling. It's yeah. so fucked. And like the way that this country has like dealt with black people's bodies is just like continually so like, so like fucked up, like in your stomach. <laughs> Like, it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't know if I have like a legal thing to be like, here's where it's fucked up. But like, it's fucked up in a way that I think most people can look at it and be like, ooh, that made my stomach turn a little bit. No, because like, it's not like you were going to ever like. It just like, sucks. Like, why did you need to keep those body people's bodies from them? It's stuff why? like this where I'm like, we literally live in hell. Like, even when someone, you, you've, you've murdered these people. 
and you still can't like allow any sort of rest. No, of course not. Um, the last thing I want to talk about with this case is the militarization of our police, because that satchel bomb that they dropped on move is typically used in combat. Um, the militarization of our police isn't new, obviously, because this incident was nearly 40 years ago, but it's because of this program called the 1033 program and the Patriot Act, which like arguably is like way worse now. But basically the 1033 program is a program that operated by the Department of Defense, which transfers excess, whatever that means, excess military equipment to non-military law enforcement agencies. Since it was initiated in 1990. So this actually, this case actually was before that. So think about how bad it is now. If they were able to drop a bomb on a city before this was even passed, think about it now. Anyway, since it was initiated in 1990, more than $5.4 billion worth of military equipment has been transferred from the Pentagon to local and state police. One of the crazy stats I saw when researching this was that between 2006 and 2014, almost 5,000 M16 rifles were distributed to local and state law enforcement agencies in Ohio under the surplus military equipment program, like just Ohio. That's not even 10 years. In eight years, 5,000 rifles to Ohio. And obviously, like when the Patriot Act came in the wake of 9 11 and expanded, like, our surveillance state and interagency communication and like the list of activities that qualified as terrorism, it just became so much worse because the law, because law enforcement became so much more powerful. And I'm not educated on it enough, but it has, it makes me think it has to do with like, like whatever these defense contracts are and these defense contractors, like the money that like the state is getting from that and and stakeholders are getting is getting from that must it must be insane no for sure because at the end of the day like so much of this is about money i mean arguably this case like we talked about earlier is about money because the universities weren't happy about like this presence and the people wanted to be able to sell their homes to the university like it's always money everything comes back to capitalism anyway the thing with a more militarized police force is it always ends badly. In January 2011, Rogelio Serrato died of smoke inhalation after a flashbang grenade launched by the SWAT team of the Greenfield Police Department ignited a fire in his home. In May 2014, a SWAT team looking for drugs in a Cornelia, Georgia home threw a flashbang flashbang grenade into the house and the grenade landed in the playpen of a 19-month-old baby boy detonating and severely burning his face and that's not all I mean we can talk about cases like this all the time Katherine Johnson is a case I want to talk about at some point in this podcast like an old lady who was killed by the police in like a military style raid but also police are losing these weapons a fusion report in a fusion report said that in August 2014, a total of 184 state and local police departments had been suspended from the 1033 program for missing weapons and failure to comply with guidelines. Missing items included M14, M16 assault rifles, pistols, shotguns, and two Humvee vehicles. How the fuck do you lose a Humvee, let alone two? I mean, this takes me a little bit back to like, the difference of the right versus the left. I'm like, let's talk about gun control for the cops. Like, 
we had this discussion a lot with I think like this is one where I actually tend to deviate a lot with like kind of people who are more right wing where I'm like I want gun control and like we agree on so much gun control too even it's like I'm not trying to take your pistol like you know what at this point you keep your little handgun I'm not there yet like let's talk about 17 year olds buying assault weapons right like let's talk about giving the police rocket launchers right like I'm I actually your little pistol last of my concerns we're not there yet like let's talk about the big military grade weapons that are on our streets and like being lost that's absurd no I'm the same way where like I I like don't think we just need to like take away everyone's guns like I'm actually like pretty pro gun in the sense that like I think people especially marginalized people should be able to have access to weapons that they can use to defend themselves especially when we have a militarized police force that is like launching bombs at people like I don't think allowing some of these marginalized folks to have a gun or two is crazy but like we're sitting here like how do these guns get on the street maybe because the police are losing them and let's be real. Are they losing them or are they selling them? Right. Like, like what is losing? Like, uh, like, okay. Yeah. Maybe I've bought home something from the office once in my pocket, but like, that's not the same as like a gun. Yeah. Anyway, the militarization of our police actually started receiving a lot of criticism in 2014 after the Ferguson and Baltimore protests from both Democrats and Republicans. And in 2015, Obama announced limits on the types of military equipment that could be transferred to police through this program. This led the military to attract the transfer of some weapons, such as grenade launchers, weaponized vehicles, and bayonets to police. Again, why the fuck do the police need bayonets? Like, that doesn't even make sense to me. But the response to Obama's announcement from the United States' largest police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, was to politicize it pledging to push back against the new restrictions, accusing the administration of politicizing officers' safety, because, you know, obviously officers aren't safe without bayonets and M16s. Um, And they said that it was not okay to put superficial concerns about public safety. That is actually a direct quote from Jeff Sessions when he announced under the Trump administration that they were going to be undoing what Obama had done to demilitarize our police. Not that Obama had done all that much, but when Jeff Sessions was like, we're gonna undo it because we're not gonna put superficial concerns above public safety. I don't think it's a superficial concern to not want police to have bayonets. I don't. It's the public safety, but the biggest, bigger safety threat for them is black people, right? Like they're, they're like, I think that like that could be a quote that he meant deep in his soul. But like the issue is like they're they're like yeah, but the public safety threat is crime and drugs, right? Like they're like we need these things because the war on drugs. Like it's all just like the back this like political messaging shit and capitalism, and they believe it. Like I, I mean, maybe Jeff Sessions doesn't, but a lot of people like believe these things deeply. I'm sure Jeff Sessions does because he is absolutely threatened by black people. But is it also not the public that they're using these weapons on? But I mean, I think that speaks to like, they don't view these people as their community members. They don't view them as the public. I'd argue they don't view a lot of them even as people. Yeah, I think that's where it starts. But like, they definitely don't think that they're in community with these people, which is crazy because I actually like view police, like you as a police officer, like not you as like 
a police officer, but like you as a person who works as a police officer, you are still my community member and they will never view us the same way. The other thing I like say to a lot of these cops is like, I believe in your right to protect yourself. And like, I believe in my right to protect myself, right? Like, I mean, I'm in skid row. If someone came at me seriously, like I carry a taser. I don't think that you shouldn't be able to protect yourself in some capacities. The issue is we've now gone from protect yourself to like, I'm going to protect myself against the, th- the potential threat of black people or like well, the potential threat of like this against like the actively armed, like the armed right. is running around the West coast. Like, right. They would exactly. never act like that with that. Exactly. But like, I don't know, like, I just think it's like so annoying because I feel like the level of nuance that like we can discuss these things with of like, there are multiple not perfect actors. Like some people like got, it's not just no guns. It's let's talk about the types of guns. Like let's talk about the types of equipment. Like that level of nuance just goes out the window, which is so frustrating because I think there is a real legitimate conversation that could be had between people who have very different kind of like American politicized political views. It's just that there's a refusal to acknowledge that maybe it's a little deeper than like bad black people, police came in to save the city. I think it's also like a propaganda issue where they're like just being told to be scared all the time and that causes them to ignore the facts and like the fact is a study found that there was a statistically significant positive relationship between the militarization of our police and fatalities from officer involved shootings and A 2018 study found that militarized police units were also more often to be deployed in black communities. That same study found that militarized policing fails to enhance officer safety or reduce local crime. So it's like, we want the best for you. Like I like, and like that, like, again, like this is like what feels so frustrating is like, I like when we talk about like patriarchy, for example, it's like fighting patriarchy benefits everybody. Like there's a, so a a capitalistic justification for socialism, right? Like we're fighting for theoretically all people. Like I, and I say this to cops all the time. It's like, I don't want you to be shot at, at the street. I don't want you to have to feel like you need to deploy violence because your life is in danger. How can we take steps to make it so your life is less in danger? And it's like, like I, I want you to be able to do community policing or whatever. Just, I don't know. I don't have a good solution. Um, but you know what I mean? No, like, I, I would like you to do that job and then go home without the fear of being killed. And I understand that there is violence in the streets. And I understand that there is a level of, I would say, like violence that might be necessary in the world, I guess. I don't know. I don't, I don't like to like give them credit on that. But like, I understand when things happen and that there is a level of nuance of safety and violence or whatever. The issue is though, like we're fighting for a world where you don't have to shoot your fellow police officers while raiding a house of people. Like we're fighting for a world where those conversations can happen to begin with, where you don't need to start by force. And that's the thing is like, these cops are scared. They are like worried about all this stuff. They think that they need all this to protect themselves. And it's like, I wish you could understand that we are also scared. And that if we like addressed where the fear was coming from, like things could be better. Like if we took some stuff off your plate so that you weren't like having to do the bad shit that you, like there's just such a better way to do it because like, yeah, I don't want you to get shot at either. Like all cops are bastards, but I think that like there are cops that are good people and I don't want harm to 
come to you. Like, and I want to be able to go to you. Like, I want to feel comfortable going to the police when I have a crisis. And like, I don't feel like that I can do that. Sorry, Chris, I cut you off. What were you saying? No, you're good. It's, I just think it's kind of impossible though to get there. Not, not impossible. I like really radically imagine a different world and I know that anything is possible, but I think it's really hard to get there because it's like this feeling of like clinging to control. It's like to, to sit down and have those conversations means that you have to be open to give and like people are not open to move an inch. I guess like I think that like I've been having this conversation where I think I believe that people I don't say like aren't as good as I think they are I think that I believe that people are less affected by systems than they might be right like I think people are really traumatized I think like growing up in capitalism is traumatizing to be fair so like I want to believe that like all of these like administrators were like damn that like we really fucked it up like this is the way we should protest but like that we don't see that either and like, that's really frustrating because it doesn't feel like they want a better solution. It feels like they were like, this was an unfortunate little incident. If it happened again, we'd do it the same way. And it's like, where is the critical thought? Like, can you look back at this and like genuinely reflect? And like, even if they came forward and, you know, had a lot of really apologetic statements, I would view them more positively, right? Like we truly understand that we absolutely messed up. We are going to try to work with the existing members to find solutions going forward. Like you guys asked this in your, I mean, I'm telling you, you guys do this podcast. You guys asked this, like, what would community justice like look like? Like what would accountability look like? And it's like, there are ways that there's these conversations could have occurred or ways for them to admit some fault, but you can't in the system that exists. And we're going to, and we're going to get to those questions in a second, but I do want to end by like kind of recentering the victims of it. Um, This is a quote from a piece by Mike Africa Jr. Apologies are not for the victims. They are to ease the minds of the offenders. Good has apologized for the bombing of MOVE no less than four times, but even in his most recent apology, served mostly to deflect the very blame he was claiming to accept. He wrote, I am ultimately responsible for those I appointed. I apologize for their reckless actions that brought about this horrific outcome, even though I knew nothing about their specific plan of action. This is why apologies without action are meaningless. They are not catalysts of change, but rather a means of placating the public so that those in power can continue to carry on as they always have. Far from ever facing punishment for the bombing of my family, Good actually did, actually had a Philadelphia street named after him in 2018. Public apologies allow officials like Good to give the appearance of taking responsibility without facing any real punishment or repercussions. It is all part of a carefully constructed machine, the machine that allows a police chief to apologize away the shooting of an unarmed black man without making any changes to his department, or for the officer who shot the young man to go on administrative leave rather than being fired or arrested. Always that admin leave. Yeah, that that is a really beautiful piece by Mike Africa. It's it's longer, so I couldn't read the whole thing. I'm gonna put it in the link tree. Um, but I mean, that that is powerful. That is what we've been saying. Like, that's what you just said, Shade. Like, I mean, that wasn't an apology. That like he said, "I'm sorry, but," which is embarrassing, right? Like, the apology doesn't do it. It's the continued action showing that the apology meant something. Um, which like obviously didn't happen. Well, also, 
a quote from Mayor Good, like right after this happened was, there was no way to avoid it, no way to extract ourselves from that situation except by armed confrontation. Like, what do you mean there's no way to avoid it? That's your fucking job to figure it out. That, I mean, that's always the response. Like, we had no options. Like, that's not true. Yeah. And I know it can look that way on the back end, especially once people are dead. Like, you did have options. And yeah. also, you're the person in, like, the most position of power here. Like, you you are the person that not only has options, but, like, creates the options. So, yeah, I have, like, no sympathy for that. So, I mean, that's that's the case. But to kind of start thinking... And I know the three of us could go on all night and probably will, but like, I, I urge everyone to think about like, how could the situation have been handled differently by police? I think we've talked about some of it, like having mediators there, like not sending 10,000 rounds into a house with children in it. Like, I don't know, maybe you all have better thoughts about that, but like, how could, Everybody, I want to think about, like, how could this have been handled differently? I don't know if you all have, like, direct thoughts on that one. I mean, I think there are, like, points for me where things can turn around. Like, that's how I think about a lot of things in life was, like, there's, like, inflection points. And, like, I would say, you know, like, murder of a baby is probably, like, a pretty big inflection point, right? Like, if you go back and handle that situation differently, do we ever get here? I don't know, right? Like, if we... What like what points? Okay, if we go back and if you gave all of these people good educational systems, all of these things, would we ever get here? I would argue no. If you didn't over police their communities, would we ever get here? Right? Like, there's so many points where there are interventions that could have occurred, and for me, so many of them fall on the systemic side. Like, I think it's really hard for me to want to place blame, especially on people who have been just like repeatedly oppressed and traumatized by systems. Um, even when doing bad things, like I think that I'm not, I don't want to say lenient on crime. When I run for office, this clip is going to be like Sade is lenient on crime. Um, I'm not running for office ever, but you know, like, I think that for me, like, that's what I think that's really sad is like, where could the system have helped these people before we even got to a police intervention, um, in the system that we have, I mean, I, I just, like, don't ever truly believe that the police tried to be communicative and, like, offer things, right? Like, I never see that actually happen, even when they're talking about negotiations. Like, every time I see a negotiation or anything like that, and I watch a good number of true crime-ish documentaries with negotiators, there's never any give, right? Like, the negotiator's job is to, like, end the crisis without giving anything. And that, for me, is, like, the the issue that's always going to persist, like, these are people who are often asking you for things that are pretty reasonable in certain senses, or like maybe not all of it is reasonable, but there are parts that are reasonable, like asking for black liberation, asking for equality, like those are very reasonable requests. And for me, it would be on the city to be like, we can't meet you on X, Y, Z points. We hear these things are important to you. How can we reach some conclusion? But that for me never comes from, you know, negotiators or the government or whatever. And then I also think about it, like, what were, like, the actual things that needed to be addressed? Like, okay, yes, the sound coming from the house, like, education for the children. Let's pretend that the city cares about that. That's new. And then the trash codes and, like, I guess, like, like, hygiene codes. But, I mean, I guess that kind of gets to, like, another question of, like, say police didn't exist. Say we are in a world where we got rid of them. Like, 
how is this situation handled? And I think it's like, there has to be communication between the neighbors and move. And like, I don't know what those negotiations look like. And maybe there was like a good faith attempt at negotiation between these folks. But like we talked about, I think in episode one, like maybe move starts a community garden. And because of that, their community goes and advocates for them at city hall. Or maybe, maybe they pick up their trash and like the community members are like, hey, you say you care about the environment. Maybe you pick up your trash. That shows care. Like have a conversation, especially like in today's day and age. I don't know what it was like in the eighties. Obviously I'm in my twenties, but like in today's day and age, nobody wants to talk to their neighbors about problems. Everyone's so quick to call the police and we can't, do that. I really want to urge people to like reevaluate when to call the police and when to try to negotiate with your quote unquote adversary yourself. Like when it's safe, I'm not saying like go and like confront someone that's violent, but like these people weren't violent. Or even like, like, we'll help you. Sorry, go for it. No. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what I was going to say. Like your neighbors aren't just like not your enemy but they can be like your comrade like they're they're the closest person to you when you when you need help and when you when you need something like to have a strong relationship with your neighbor is like so beneficial and way more beneficial than anything that the police could ever offer you also their neighbors were saying we agreed with their movement right like we had quotes from neighbors who are cops saying we agreed with what they were asking for So like, I mean, and again, I don't know how hard they were to negotiate with or talk to. I wasn't there. I did not see how dirty, whatever. Like I didn't smell the smells. I want to be able to give space for all of that. But like, my thought would be, hey, we see your yard is really dirty. We agree with your cause. What if we do a community barbecue where we come help you clean up garbage, right? Like we'll help out with that stuff. Is that like something you guys aren't able to do? Like, how can we meet you in the middle? We we already agree with your cause, you know, we'll sign, you, you mentioned this earlier, I believe, Chris, like we'll sign on to a coalition or petitions and help, you know, do your advocacy work. Please fucking shut the speakers off. Or can you run them from four to five on a weekday? Like there's like negotiations that can happen, especially when you're able to say like, I don't agree with everything, but we're on the same page here. And it's the ability to say that and be like, these people aren't like so removed from me or so removed from my community that I think is just really often missing. The other thing I I kind of want to just think about because I don't know the answer to this is like, what does justice even look like in this case? Like how, how do we honor who has been lost through this and like attempt to give them justice? I don't know. Like, I don't know how there can be justice in a case like this. I mean, other than abolition, but like, you know, I'm not pie in the sky. Like, I know that that's not going to happen tomorrow. Like, what steps could people take? Could the city take? Could the police take? Like, whatever, to bring justice to these people? Because there hasn't been. I mean, they didn't even get the bodies of their loved ones until, like, a year ago. So what does justice look like? My thought is, like, there's never justice. I think, like, once someone has been, like, their your life has been dramatically impacted. And I was actually thinking about this all listening to your podcast um, earlier, which is, like, can there ever be justice once someone is traumatized, right? Like, what does justice really mean for that person? Like, can you ever undo that trauma? And like, for me, the answer is no. And so even the concepts of justice gets really hard 
I mean, I think there are ways to provide, you know, support. You rebuild neighborhoods, you rebuild them well, you put community services in there, you provide people with counseling, you provide them with whatever. But like that for me will never be justice because people are gone. They they will never get their lives back. And like their family will never get them back. They will never get to be fully fledged people in the world again. And like there's never ever a justice for me when that happens, especially at the hands of the state that's supposed to protect you. Yeah, I mean, same. Like, I, I, same. There's not, there's no justice. Once someone's been murdered, especially murdered by the state, how, like, how can there be justice after that? Things that come to mind, money, like, money talks, that's great. Um, also, like, the whole block being rebuilt in a way that's great and livable and completely restored and full ownership regardless of mortgage status going to the people who lived there before and then they can decide if they want to live in or sell it or whatever i um, honestly think one piece of justice would have been releasing janine the second this happened absolutely releasing yeah releasing the fact that she had to them. sit in prison with this for like 40 years like that's really fucked up or even like the way they tell them right like I hear a lot of this. I actually hear this story a lot from guys of like, yeah, my prosecutor came into the room and just told me my mom was dead. And then we had to start court. Like I hear those stories a lot. And like, I have a guy who went back to prison because he punched his prosecutor in the face. No, his prosecutor. he punched his lawyer in the face because his lawyer was like, oh, I wanted to let you know your kid died last week. And like in a courtroom, this guy like punched him. And I was like, yeah, like I, I get it. I would probably do the same. Let's be real. The other thing I would say though, is like, I would want to see accountability from individuals. And like, for me, I don't think that ever really happens, but, and I've said this to like politicians in LA, I want you on the street, get out there and shake some hands and have real conversations. I would want, you know, Wilson good to go person by person and have conversation, like let them yell at you. Um, We had this at, at school, my freshman year, which probably wasn't fair, I'll be real. But our dean, we had what we called the race apocalypse, and our dean of students stood in a crowd of people for four hours, sobbing as people like laid out their grievances. And like this, this poor man was like, I, I had to quit that day. I knew I had to quit. <laughs> um, like he was like, it was, it was hor- horrific. Like it, it changed my life. It was one of the saddest, worst things I've ever heard. And like such an example of how I failed this school, all of these things. He was a black man and we were talking about race, but like that moment didn't change anything, but him standing there for four hours as students were like, you're a piece of shit. And him being like, heard, I'm like crying. Like that meant a lot. And I don't, I know it didn't mean a lot for everybody, but it did for me to be like, even if this is like completely fake, this man is out here. And I never see that type of response. Like I would want them really on the streets. I would want them giving money out of their own pockets. I would want him to set up a recurring fund, set up a scholarship fund for the kids, right? Like, and do some of the shit out of your own pocket. Um, Like take accountability yeah. for the yeah, fact I that you that played a role. Settlement. Mm-hmm. I, it makes me think of um, Miriam Kaba has like this short story called Justice where she like imagines this world without prisons or police. And when someone's murdered in this world, like the person who's responsible for the murder has to like fully integrate into the family of the person who was murdered and obviously like that's a lot to put on the family and that wouldn't necessarily be the case but like to have to like deeply sit with like like deeply sit with 
every single person whose life was lost and like the people that it affected and like hear stories of them like for a long time i think that i i don't think we should remove people who have caused harm from the harm they've caused you know like i I think they need to sit in it and be with it there was like that study about abusers too which is like it's you can't really rehabilitate abusers until they can admit that they were abusive like you need people to be able to admit and understand the harm they caused and and the other thing is like these people all went on to have illustrious careers or so it seems like you got to nip that in the bud uh, like three strikes rule for cops right like get, get me some of those things on the books like you shouldn't be allowed to continue to hold power over marginalized people after demonstrating that you cannot wield that power responsibly and like i say this in my personal life like there are people who are going into careers in my life where I'm like, hey, I would actually call and make a report to your work because I don't think you're a safe person to be in charge of marginalized people. And I'm, I'm like, that sucks. I know you want to be a theater maker and like deal with all, I don't think you're safe. Go be an accountant. Like suck it up and go find a job where you are not actively causing harm in the same way. And like, yeah, can you cause harm as an accountant or I don't know, what do people do in the real world? A mark, A marketing agent? Sure. But like, it's not the same level of power and control that you can wield in some positions. And I think that we need to have real conversations about that. Like once you are proven to be racist enough without like real rehabilitation and work, I don't think you should be allowed to rule over marginalized people. I think that's actually pretty realistic, like pretty pragmatic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is why I love this is why I'm really enjoying doing this because I feel like I'm learning so much from both of you and like being able to sit and think about this is it's it's nice because I do think like some of what you're saying like those are like reasonable actionable steps like having Mayor Good have to sit and talk to the victims like that is a real thing that could help the situation and I and I hope like those of you out there listening like I hope that like if you have things that we didn't bring up that you think would be reasonable like tweet at us comment on a tiktok whatever it is like send us an email I don't know if our email is in our link tree why not maybe we should I don't I don't know if that's like a risky thing to do or not but I I would, I'd love to have conversations with people DM us on Twitter I I respond to Twitter DMs but like this is how we break we make change you know sitting and talking and thinking about how we can make things better and then like going and doing it and like one day we're going to get to the going and doing it part. And I'm really excited about that. But like, God, I don't want to say that I've like enjoyed this episode because like this shit is heavy and it's awful. But like, I feel like we've been able to like really sit and think about like how we can make systems better here together, the three of us. And like that I've enjoyed and that's made me excited. Yeah. And like, I mean, I think that like for a long time, I was like, I cannot be a reformist and I cannot be an abolitionist together. And I think like at this point, I'm like, my end goal is abolition End goal being kind of like, it's not like a fixed point. You kind of keep working towards it. But also in the meantime, let's talk about reform. Like, what can we get on the books? What can we do for people in the immediate term that changes their reality, like their material reality? And I will continue to push for a system that doesn't include this policing militarization (laughs) I don't know like include what at this point like include the supreme court include the electoral college like there's so many places where I would say we need like abolition um but 
you know, like hopefully in the short, shorter term, talking about these things can like bring people to understanding systems better and pushing for things within the system if we're not going to be able to like overhaul it all tomorrow. And I also don't think you have to wait for the system to like not always engage in it. Like we were talking about, like knowing your neighbors and like being in community with like your very immediate community and, and people that you wouldn't necessarily always interact with. Like I think those are those are things that I found to be really empowering. You don't have to wait for it all to be abolished in order to like create a semi better world. Yeah. Well, I hope you all have enjoyed this two-parter. I, I think that we've had, like I said, we've had such great conversation and I like want to continue this conversation with like you folks out there, but also like Shade, we're gonna have to bring you back obviously like friend friend of the pod Shade. y'all are great i'm obsessed this is so i mean this is so great and then i the like the thing i want to say is like i was like a true crime person i've consumed my fair share of true crime content and like i think this is like actually really interesting to be able to talk about this when i was saying to my friends i was like i'm doing a pod true crime podcast about like police and everyone's like whoa like this is so cool and like getting to see it you know the response on tiktok and see you guys build this out like it's just so incredible and so just like wanted to hype that up for a minute too well first of all thank you like this is kind of our little baby and it's been really crazy to see how it's grown and i'm glad people are enjoying it but like also when we talked about we had always wanted to start bringing on guests but like chris and i both from the beginning were like shot i has to be a guest like one of the early ones no i was like number one and I just I knew that we were all like we've been here for hours like my computer is on the verge of dying I just know it's gonna die like right before we're done recording but it's because like we can just talk forever no this is great thank you no thank you guys for having me on I really appreciate it I'm like trying to like now get the shit in before your computer dies I'm like let's go (laughs) um yeah what final thoughts do we have what final thoughts do we have what do we need to plug what's happening vote tomorrow vote vote always but vote tomorrow like get a sticker and a donut we and learned donut. we can get a donut that's huge um it make sure sucks. you check out Sade's oh, nonprofit. yeah check me out because no yeah. they're doing amazing work wait you haven't plugged that in this episode i don't think that was oh. in the last episode so get into that. sure well you have to listen to the last episode then um i have a nonprofit oh operating in skid row called atlas guide we're atlasguide.org we're trying to build kind of resource finders and do direct service and you, you can take donations me- we do take donations. Donate. Donate yeah. to Sade's nonprofit. You're helping. Donate. People. And you can always use our evil overlord Amazon to send items directly, which is horrific. Like there's, it's so sad. Um, but we do take direct items like that, especially if you want to like pick things out. I know a lot of people like to send stuff like tampons or like underwear, which is like always you nice. Socks, right? Yeah, we get a lot of, we do a lot of, we try to do a lot of socks and like hygiene kits, all of those like basics. I mean, again, it's just like the quality of life is so bad and you can help in such little ways, right? Like 20 bucks is a hygiene kit. I mean, like we're getting people toilet paper, like bottles of water. It's just so, I don't know, it's just shitty. (laughs) And like, and that's my conclusion for this too, is that like the systems are really shitty and no one wins, right? Like Wilson Good didn't win. He looks like an asshole forever, right? Like I'm sure this man gets yelled at in restaurants by his community. Like that sucks. No one wins in this situation. And it's because the system sucks and we learn bad things and it's shitty. 
And that's what we're here to show you at Thimbu Crime. The system sucks. <laughs> and <build a> the <laughs> world is with dark. You around imagining a different one. So. Yeah. And that's great. Like, I think that was really exciting about this was, and, and this in general was to be able to think about a different future, right? I think that's really hard for a lot of people. Like, this is the way it's been for a long time. And hopefully people can start thinking about the fact that there are other ways to exist in community that ideally are slightly better. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Shade, for joining us. And we'll be back with your regularly scheduled cops committing crimes next episode. I with an with another guest. Spoiler alert. We're we're going to be this is our thing that we really want to start bringing in more community members to talk about this because obviously Chris and I could go off about this all day, but like we want more perspectives. So mm-hmm. First of all, if you have a guest that you want to come on, tag tag us or tag them, whatever it is, send them send them our way. But also, we're excited about some of the guests we have coming on. Um, we're excited about this whole community we're building, and I don't know, maybe we'll make the world a better place or something. You do. I get. I don't know. I don't know if you get this, but like, people do learn on the internet, and like, I get a lot of comments about people whose like perspectives have been changed, and like. I don't know if you're like making content on the internet too, right? Like that, that, that's something like it is education work. It's all important. Mm -hmm. That's it. Any final words, Chris? I don't think so. It feels really nice to expand our podcast. Like we did. I've said it before. I'll say it a million times. I think knowledge is held in community. So it's great to, to get to feel some more of that. Yeah. Also, if you liked this episode, if you like the podcast in general, give us a review on whatever place you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, whatever. That helps us like go up the rankings to bring in more listeners to like continue to build and grow this community. Like we really do listen to what you all are telling us and like we want to be able to reach more people to like continue to have more of those conversations. So no, give us like- a review if it's good. Don't leave us a bad review. Don't do that but give us a review follow us on all of our socials and like i said we're going to post some links related to this case in our link tree so definitely go read some of the content that we pulled from for this episode cool bye talk to you guys next week week. we'll see you Bye. bye